Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey, presto, no ads. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. And today we're going to do something quite different. We're going to look at books that we're going to look at, John. Books. And the reason being is that I walked in here this morning and the place is strewn, strewn with books. And I'm picking them up and reading the blurb and some of them very clever stuff. And I'm wondering... Some is not so clever. Well, I'm kind of wondering, Mac, first of all, like Mac reads books like you wouldn't believe. So what were the highlights? because I've got no mates. (laughs) Johnny, no mates, isn't it? Before we get into all the books for next year, what were the highlights books of 23? I tell you, speaking of academia, John, right? I woke up the other night. I was quite jet lagged, so I didn't sleep very well. But Mm. I woke up and I knew I had had horrific dreams. And I was in an exam hall. Right? Okay. Right, okay. This is just me. This is my life. Yeah. Like swatty pants, right? And I was in the exam in hall. cold sweat. And I, it, I was in a cold sweat, right? And I couldn't get the answer to this extremely, what it then transpired was an easy equation. Right? right. But I just, my brain wasn't working. Yeah. And then I realized why I had a freak out about academics and exams the other night was one of the greats of economics passed away over the Christmas break. Oh, right. Okay, a guy called Robert Solo, right? Mm. Who, Anthony DeHaan Solo. <laughs> I knew you'd say that. Yeah, he was the guy in the bar, right? The guy, do you remember, do you remember the bar? Chewbacca's mate. Chewbacca's mate, exactly. Chewbacca's mate, Robert Solo, okay? <laughs> Uncle of Hans, right? Oh, he was a Nobel Prize winner for economics job, Right. right. But not only that, uh, very, very brilliant, died at 99. It seems, to have well, been the, it seems to have been the month of very old people dying at 99 and 100. Charlie Munger, Henry Kissinger, yeah. this guy Solo, right? Solo was a fascinating person. He's part of that generation the Americans called the greatest generation. Right. right. Who were the generation that fought the Second World War. And because they fought the Second World War, Kindleberger was another one of them. Oh, yeah. They had a much more enlightened view of what society was all about because they knew what was at stake, that this was a battle between 
ideologies and good and evil. And if you lost this, you lost in an actual fact. Fascinating solo before he became an economist was a Morse code breaker in the American <laughs> really? army. Yes, oh, as a nice. young fellow. So he was a mathematical guy, right? Yeah. And during the Battle of the Ardennes and the Battle of the Bulge, the, the Americans had to go out and break the codes of the Germans. But mm. what actually was very dangerous because they were breaking the codes not of the high command, but mm. of the low command of, of battalions, right? Which meant that the code breakers had to get as close to the Germans as possible to hear the codes. Right, okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that meant that he, this very, very lovely elderly academic, as a young man, was on the front lines in the Second World War. Wow. So they brought wow. all that stuff back. Yeah. But he was the guy who came up with, so people who've studied economics will know about Robert Solo because he wrote one of the, most of the textbooks. He also introduced maths into economics in a way in which probably freaked out a lot of people, right? What do you mean? So his big obsession was, and it's, I mean, it sounds very odd for you to think now, is why do economies grow? And you would have thought that that is the basic question of economics, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But very, very few people put together models of actually how economies grow, right? So they observed over 100 years, the economy grew and the population grew, but nobody really understood actually why was this the case. And what Solo did was he took microeconomics, right? The economics of the firm. Yeah. And what they called production function, which is the possibilities of production functions at the firm. So how much can a firm produce? Yeah, yeah. How much does it produce? Why does it produce this much? And what are the inputs and outputs that you need, right? Yeah. And he took this and he began to look at economies and he said, look, the way economies grow is the following. It's based on the capital stocks, the amount of capital you have in the country. Mm -hmm. It's based on the rise in the population and in particular, the rise in the workforce. And it's you fuse those two together and it's based on the productivity of not just the workforce, which is labour productivity, but a thing called total factor productivity, right? Yeah, now, yeah. this may sound quite easy now, but in the 1950s, this was quite revolutionary because he had also a number of other ideas which came from the same, it's called exogenous growth theory, right? Right. Uh, Gordon Brown got slagged mercifully in the UK for his first speech as chancellor when everyone said, well, Gordon Brown is a really, really clever man, but he doesn't really have the popular touch, right. which Tony Blair had. Yeah. And Gordon Brown's first speech was on the difference between endogenous and exogenous growth theory. <laughs> and you think, man, you've, you've <laughs> lost the audience. Yeah. Read, Read the, the room. room. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But Solo was the guy, anyway, who came up with all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and one of his, his, his basic ideas was that, you know, Society and economics, all very well. This is how the economy grows. But what you do with the growth rate is so much more important. Now, of course, he then began to look at relationships between various different variables, between how you create societies that are high growth societies. But one of his other ideas was that as a society grows and as a society gets richer, the marginal impact of adding more technology diminishes, right? right? Because you're actually at a certain level. And what he also meant by that was that poor countries have a natural tendency to catch up with rich countries. Because when capital is deployed in poorer countries, you get a bigger bank for your buck. Okay, yeah. And that is very important for us in Ireland here to understand because it means that the idea of blue sky thinking, that we will grow and grow and grow and grow, is highly unlikely. 
that we now have got to a stage in Ireland of economic wealth, economic sophistication, that the amount of capital you have to add to the economy now to generate 1% of economic growth right. is greater yeah, than yeah, it yeah. was in the past, okay? Yeah. Because... It's the same kind of thinking as, you know, a prime athlete, you know, when they get to that exactly. stage, to get that little 1% extra or whatever, the, the amount of energy you have to You're put into it. absolutely right. It's exactly the same idea. It's exactly the same idea that, you know, you see like football players that from the age of 19 and 25 mm. have this amazing trajectory, Right. And then they're about twenty five, and it gets hard to score goals. Yeah, you know, and which is which is why, if you're football, the likes of Messi and Ronaldo, what's exceptional is they're they were so good, so old. But what you find is that they completely changed their diet, they completely changed everything, and they yeah. they became yeah. these. So the same basic idea, right? So Solo, not Hans, yes. Robert, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, died during the. Weak. Now, the problem for Solo was that he introduced a lot of mathematics into economics. Right. And that made economics very, very difficult. And right. I, 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 so he was not very popular amongst students. He wasn't very popular amongst students, but apparently he, uh, his own students at MIT loved him because he could explain things really brilliantly and mm. beautifully and very elegantly. But, you know, for those of us who had to just read the textbooks and didn't have quite the brilliant teachers of economics, it was very difficult. Yeah. But so a giant has passed, John. And, and so, so what did he win the Nobel Prize for so specifically? He, yeah, so John, he specifically won it for his understanding of how the economy grows. Because mm. prior to Solo, there were kind of thoughts about how it grew. But he was saying, look, no, not only this is the way it grows, and we can model the way it grows. And then by splitting exogenous growth, which is growth that is influenced by things from the outside, yeah. To endogenous growth, which is growth that is influenced by things on the inside of society, we can shift economic policy towards economic growth. And what he said is then at the end, economic growth is not that consequential, right? It's what you do with the economic growth is the key thing. So, you know, this sounds in 2023 quite logical. Yeah. But in the 1950s, when economics was really quite of a young science or a young social science, these guys were, were quite revolutionary. And what was very nice about Solo is as he got older, he deployed his sort of genius and his wisdom in a very sort of, almost like Charlie Munger, kind of humorous and old dude. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. He kind of grew old the way we'd all like to grow old, very gracefully, and passed away last week at 99. So RIP, not Hans, but Robert Solo. Uh, okay, so what other books have you highlighted from last year? Well, I tell you, I'm going to look at the, the first book, John, that I, I, I read last year, which is not an economics book, but it's a really good one. It's called The Secret of Our Success by Joseph Heinrich. And right. Joseph Heinrich, and it says, how culture is driving human evolution, domesticating our species and making us smarter. I'll just give you the plug on this was uh, mind-stretching. Heinrich's book will take you on a prodigious journey through human nature and society. Now, you know I'm very interested in evolution as an idea, yeah, yeah. as a sort of a, a basic form of energy and growth and how the world works. And Joseph Heinrich is a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University, right? So you think, well, why would someone like me read this sort of book? The, re the reason is what he talks about is cultural evolution, that the way in which humans have become so much 
more dominant than every other animal is because we don't just evolve physically, but we evolve culturally mm. because we're a cooperative species. And I find that very helpful in understanding economics. So you take the, the kind of solo approach there, it's kind of mechanical and this goes up and that goes down. I'm like, that's great, mm. but there's something else in the engine of growth. Yeah. And it's humanity, right? And what he's talking about is how we evolve culturally. So, so, so evolve. You're, you're adding the humanity into the exogenous yeah. growth. Well, what, oh, what you're doing is, you're, what you're doing is, so, so for example, one fascinating chapter he has is why people who look like me are the newest version of humanity. Yes, yes. Right? So people with blue and green eyes and red hair, right? We're very, very, very new version of humanity. Now, I've always thought this is a very intriguing idea, not because it's a self-centered fucking egomaniac. <laughs> and it comes from the following, which is that the the battle between skin colors. I mean, we all started black, mm-hmm. right? And then as we as we went further north, as we migrated out of out of Africa, the battle of skin colors was a battle between two vitamins, vitamin D and folic acid, right? And one interesting thing, so as we got further north, our skin had to come whiter to absorb more vitamin D mm. out of the sun's rays. He goes one further and says, when we became domesticated, right, humans' diets changed profoundly for the worse, right? And I'd never thought of this, right? right? And the reason for we changed profoundly for the worst is because in the past, we were absorbing vitamin D, not just from the sun, mm-hmm. but also from a very, very rich in fish diet and fish oil. Yeah. But when we became domesticated and when we, so this is about eight, 9,000 years ago, we started to actually derive most of our protein from animals, yeah. from killing cows yeah. and pigs and mutton, right? And we became extremely deficient in fish oil and we became extremely deficient in vitamin D. So not only did our skin lighten, but our eyes are part of our skin. So our eyes lightened as well. And so red-haired people are just extreme blondes. We have incredibly light skin and very, very light eyes. But the reason we do is because we became evolutionarily changed we socially change because evolution tends to think, you know, something happened by nature, then humans react, right? Mm. But he's saying, no, humans, by domesticating, changed our own evolutionary path. And it was the domestication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he uses that in this example for all sorts of other ways in which humans have changed. You know, the use of language, the use of signs, the use of more, the use of, because he's great with the use of slagging. Right. So slagging was a way in the tribe. I love to hear young fellas slag each other, right? I love that. (laughs) And it's a way in the tribe of, he would argue, recalibrating dominance. So the big macho guy, who used to be the dominant, like the king bull, right? You always notice in a gang of young fellas, it's the little skinny guys are very good at slagging. And the big fellas are a bit flat-footed, right? And he argues that these are all sort of social mechanisms that humans have learned over many hundreds of thousands of years, Right but certainly many thousands of years of how to live within a community. Yeah. So that book is, it's a really, it's a, it's called The Secret of Our Success. It's a evolutionary biology book. It's fascinating. And it's part of economics. Right. Because yeah, economics yeah. is at its base, John, an organization system, right? Yeah. So to understand but the organization. As we say at the start of the, the podcast, 
To understand economics, you've got to understand... And human nature. Exactly. Economics is just the studies of humans and groups, right? Next book, John, a gem, a guy called Peter Bernstein, called The Power of Gold, The History of an Obsession. Old book. What's so good about this? This one? is just, it, it is about the history of gold from the very, very start up until now and how gold has driven humanity mm. to obsessions, to madnesses, to... And of course, it ends with money and the gold standard and what is money and what is value, all that sort of stuff. But Bernstein died a couple of years ago, writes like an angel. It is full of brilliant little details about the oddest thing. Let's, let's just pick it up here, right? Uh, he talks like gold, salt and the blessed town. So the role of salt and gold in old humanity yeah. and value systems, you know. And, you know, he also talks about the amazing impact of the camel. On economics, right? Right. So the camel so trading in North Africa. Yeah, the yeah. camels were incredibly fast. Mm. They walked really, really fast. So it changed the whole way in which the people traded salt. Yeah. Because basically, you had gold in Timbuktu, which was speeding up the supply chains. Precisely. Yeah, so yeah. It's fantastic. So I mean, if you're into into money and gold, and you're into thinking about macroeconomic history, particularly monetary economics. And I know we've a lot of friends in the Bitcoin community yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, have a read of The Power of Gold by Peter Bernstein. Another book about money written this year is a guy called Edward Chancellor, who's written a wonderful book called Devil Take the Hindmost, which is a history of financial speculation. Right. This one is The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. And I've told you this about this before. Yes. You've glazed over and I'd say, do you know the rate of interest is the most fascinating concept? And I have But it actually is. It I mean, actually, actually is, because the rate of interest puts a price on time. So when, for example, you get a 30-year mortgage, you know, anybody listening to the to the program gets a 30-year mortgage, what they're actually doing is envisaging an image of themselves in 30 years' time through their ability to pay back the mortgage. Yeah. Right. So you create a future by using the rate of interest, right? And the rate of interest is one of these things that's so misunderstood, but it's probably the most important price in the capitalist economy because it's the rate at which people are willing to borrow and willing to lend. And again, Chancellor is one of the great economic historians. He writes extraordinarily well. Mm. And again, it's a fascinating book. If you're into money and economics, that's a great one. The last one, no, the second last one we're going to look at is a thing called The Origin of Wealth by a guy called Eric Beinhocker, a radical remaking of economics and what it means for business and society. Washington Post says, a brilliant piece of intellectual history. Who Was doesn't it, want that? Is that published this year or last year? That's No, these are all these are all reasonably old books. These are really reasonably old books. Chancellor was last year. Power of Gold is, is a long time. That's, that's early 20s. Secret of Our Success by Heinrich is about five years old and... Beinhocker's book, The Origins of Wealth, is about 20 years old and it is amazing. It is the essential guidebook to evolutionary economics. Right. So what we've gone from, we've gone from Solo yeah. with his mechanistic economics. Then we're on to Heinrich with his culture. Then we're on to Bernstein with his gold and what it does. Then we're on to Chancellor and the rate of interest and what it does. And then finally, this piece, The Origin of Wealth by Beinhocker, is essentially, essentially how wealth is created, by whom, and what is the dynamic. And right. he borrows very, very heavily from evolutionary economics. Again, a bit of a hard read initially, very, very thick, very dense, 
but I can absolutely recommend it to anybody. So the last book? The last book is up between two. One is Mark Jones, who was on the show a while ago. Oh, yeah, he was great. 1923, yeah, The Forgotten Crisis in Hitler's, the year of Hitler's coup. Yeah. Fascinating from our perspective because of the hyperinflation. Okay. And then a really little gem called Merchant Soldier Sage, A New History of Power by David Priestland, who's a British uh, historian, economic historian. And he basically writes this idea that the whole history of the world is a struggle between three power bases, the merchant class, the soldiering class, and the sage or priestly class. Right, and these are castes in societies. Sounds quite old-fashioned. Yeah, to you. it yeah. is. It is old-fashioned. It's, yeah. it's a fascinating way of looking. So, for example, if you were to update it to now, like economists are the priestly class. We're like freaking high priests, right? We we <laughs> we understand the text. People mm. come to us and say, "Oh, you're experts. How do you interpret the Bible?" I say, "Well, you know, in mm. Deuteronomy it said this and la la la." <laughs> so, so we're kind of like a priestly class. It's kind of like a like lawyers, economists, the people that uh, the professional class. The professional, the interpretive class, I think mm. the class. That, okay. that, so I just see our role. We are no better than the fellas who you were looking at rabbits' innards and giblets years ago. Do you remember the, the, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the future? Yeah. Cut open a rabbit and look at his innards and say, oh, it's going to it's gonna snow tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Right? And people go, oh my God, your man knows something, right? That's what I always think we are. <laughs> a lot of people think along the lines. <laughs> I know many economists wouldn't see themselves as giblet readers, but I think that's what we are in effect. And then, of course, the merchant class or the financial class, the, the commercial class. Yeah. Right? And then there's the warrior class, the hereditary aristocracy that have been kind of knocking around for a long, long time, you know, the, 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 the big men in history. And what this guy just says is the whole history of economics is a battle between these three classes for power. And sometimes they cuddle up to each other. Sometimes they're against each other. Sometimes they kill each other. Yeah. So for example, in the communist era, Communists were basically giblet readers. They were. They'd come <laughs> yeah, up yeah. That's what Marx was, yeah. Yeah, he's a giblet reader, an extremely good giblet <laughs> reader. But he went, into, he went into a coalition with the warrior class, the soldiers yeah. class, to kill the merchants. Right. right? That's yeah. what it actually was. So yeah. it's a very interesting way of, of looking at the world. And now in the United States, you have the merchant class are in bed with the warrior class. So the industrial, we know what they call it, but this, this, this industrial, yes. military yeah, yeah, industrial yeah. complex all that sort of stuff. And they're against kind of the sage class. So they're trying to corrupt the, the, the Supreme Court, for example. Yeah. Which would be the high priests, the real yeah. high priests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it's a very interesting way of yeah, looking at yeah, the world. Yeah, that's good. That's a, that's, a, that's a fascinating way of looking at the world. And that's kind of light reading for the week, John. So next year, there's going to be a whole load of new books out, as there always is. But to add to those books, there's a very special book coming out. There is a very out. special book coming out on In, the 1st of September. Ooh. Tell us about that one. It's called Money, A Human Story, and it's written by David McWilliams. And I have been writing this, as you know, for a couple of years now. I want you to give us a rundown of that after this. Great. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, John, during COVID, yeah, when we used to do the podcast online. Do you remember? Yeah. And then we used to come down here and because it was work, we could come down here and we were so cooped up all week in our various families. And we'd come down here and doing the podcast was just a release. It was like freedom. It was. It, it was. Felt yeah, like yeah, yeah. freedom. And, uh, got but, into trouble for it as well. But anyway, there yeah, you go. Yeah, <laughs> well, getting into trouble is, is half the high. It's, it's life. If you didn't get into trouble, you wouldn't be living. But during COVID, I thought to myself, well, what are you going to do with all this time? Because, you know, there was a, there was a perception that could have gone on for years. Mm. We kind of forgot that. And I spoke to my publisher, Simon Schuster, and I, th- I thought, you know, there's a very interesting story of money to be told. And the story of money to be told, not necessarily just from a financial perspective, but what money has done to us. Yeah. And, and I think that we are a species that have been profoundly affected by our relationship with this extraordinary technology called money. So it looks at money as a technology, as an enabler, a technology that has enabled humans to do extraordinary things. And it takes, we start very, very early on with the adoption of fire, then the adoption of agriculture, then the first civilizations, the Sumerians. Take it all the way back then because that's when you first see money emerging as an idea. Yeah. And, and, and this is when they were trading things like salt and... All that stuff. Yeah. And the, but the basic idea is that money is a social technology, that actually without money, humans couldn't coexist, yeah. right? It is one of those fundamental, basic technologies that we need to live in complicated urban societies. That's the first idea. Mm. And then once you accept that... And you can go through, you go through the Lydians and the Greeks and the Romans and all these civilizations and you you see the, the change in their relationship with money and how their relationship with money propelled them forward. And then we go on into the Dark Ages and you, you actually look at something very interesting, which is during the Dark Ages, so that period between the end of the Roman Empire and let's say the beginning of what we call the early medieval empire, mm. An extraordinary thing happens in Europe in particular. It's a Eurocentric book, okay? It's Eurocentric simply because we are Europeans. But what you see is that money disappears almost at the same time as art disappears, progress, technological progress, everything. So there's this very strange relationship between the evolution of money and evolution of human society. Right. And I think it's because money 
allows us to cooperate together. So lots and lots of people say money is the root of all evil. You hear that all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Actually came, I think, from St. Paul, right? But I don't think so. I think actually if you look at the history of money, the first thing you do when you trade with somebody using money is you stop killing them. So money was a facilitator of trade. Yeah. And trade was a facilitator of exchange. And trade was ultimately a peaceful instrument between various different yeah. tribes. Yeah, yeah. So what, what you see is that as people adopt money, at every iteration, society becomes much, much more intellectually, emotionally, politically, and socially curious. And, and I take and it integrated. And, and integrated. Yeah. So you basically meet people you never met before. Yeah. And even if you think about it now, think about the amount of people you meet every day and have relationships every day and engagements. And the medium is money. There's nothing else keeps you together. Yeah. And it's the, it's the one, I think it's the one technology and system of organization that keeps humanity together. We couldn't have this complex integrated economy of 8 billion people without money. And money, it's, it's a much bigger force than religion, than any country, than any army. It is an amazing force. But when inequality comes into that, and there's big disparities yeah. between the haves and the have-nots, yeah. then it creates... Then, a, it, then it creates huge dilemmas. But money isn't what causes inequality. Yeah. The tolerance of unfairness is what causes inequality. Money can actually fix inequality if we choose to do so. So what I do is I take it, I take it through our friends in Florence, then we go from Florence to the Renaissance, then we go to the Reformation, then we go to Gutenberg, then we go to the, what I call the Age of Revolution, starting with the Dutch Revolution, then the American Revolution, then yeah. the French Revolution. We have John Law thrown in there as well, who again came up with fiat money, which right. I happen to believe is a very brilliant invention. And then we all the way up through Darwin, and it's it's a big book. And we end up with genuflection to Hitler and all sorts of things, and we end up at today. So it's a big thousands of years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's how many pages is the writing Loads very big? Loads of pages. The writing's <laughs> huge. The writing's huge. But no, it's been wonderful. It's been a great thing to do. It's been a, you know, a wonderfully fascinating project. Like yeah. a lot of those big projects, it kind of kills you a bit during the middle of it because you're trying yeah, to put so of much course. together. Yeah, yeah. But now we're nearly there and it will be published by Simon & Schuster on the 1st of September all around the world, which is great. That's fantastic. So we'll have to go, we'll have to go on a tour, John. Absolutely. A money tour. Absolutely. Tour. Absolutely. Exactly. I'm totally up for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, it brings us all the way up to cryptocurrencies, to Bitcoin, to digital currencies, to where we're going to go next with yeah. money. I mean, and the idea is that the story of money is the story of humanity. That humans wouldn't be the same animal that we are if we hadn't been accompanied by this technology called money for the last 5,000 years. That's the idea. End of story. No, story only beginning. Because the great thing about the story of money, because it's the story of humanity, it changes all the time. Because we change all the time. Yeah. Talk to you next week.